Today is February 3rd, Friday, 2012, and my guest today on Think Relevance, the podcast, is Clinton Nixon. How are you doing today, Clinton? I'm doing really well. I'm really glad to hear that. Uh, so right now, people that are listening to the podcast are hearing some music playing in the background. They heard it come in. Um, you're the person that is picking that intro music for our podcast as our guest. What do you pick? I uh, picked Future Crimes by Wild Flag. It's a recent song I heard that I really liked. Awesome. Cool. I haven't heard that one, so I'm looking forward to finding that and putting it on the podcast. Um, so, you know, I hope I hope I can start with a question that I, that I really hope is not rude that you're, that you're not tired of, but, um, you know, it came up in the first <laughs> minute of the podcast, which is your name is awesome, right? Clinton Nixon. That is a fantastic name. How did you, how did you come by that? Well, um, the story for my parents, of course, my parents' last name is Nixon, so we didn't have much of a choice there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they almost named me Virgil, which would have been a great name, too. Oh, but, absolutely. Uh, at the last minute, my mom knits to that, and uh, because she was a fan of Clint Eastwood, I became Clinton. Gotcha. So, I mean, you know, you're a little younger than me, I think, so this was before the, the Bill Clinton era, so it wasn't an intentional two presidents thing or anything like that. No, it, it really wasn't. I, Bill Clinton was probably uh, in college when, there you go. when they named me. So. All right. Okay. Well, cool. So, um, so uh, Clinton, you're a developer here at Relevance. Uh and um, I, I wanted to have you on because we were kicking ideas around for the podcast, and and uh, among other things, like the fact that you're just an interesting person, <laughs> um, th- you you said something that really sparked my interest, which is you said I have got a really interesting Ruby setup, um, and so we have to talk about that because we you know we do a lot of Ruby at Relevance, and uh, we haven't had a really hard technical um, podcast in a while, so I thought this perfect, so. You should tell people why your Ruby setup rocks so hard. Wow. My Ruby setup rocks so hard. Uh, well, first, just because I use it day in and day out, so I keep polishing it. But um, these days, there's a couple of things that are uh, making my life work really well. And the first and foremost of them is a, a gem called Pry, which I've been putting into every project recently, and it's just been fantastic. Um, if uh, you haven't heard of it, Pry. I, I haven't, no. It's a replacement for IRB, Interactive Ruby. Um, that gives you a lot of really great uh, introspection abilities. You can uh, you know, change scope between objects, between classes. Um, in addition, you can uh, edit uh, any method or any uh, uh, file that you're working with on the fly and have it reloaded. So mm. um, it's been pushing me toward uh, what I like to call repo-based development, where I'm just in the repo all day. Uh, I, you know, whenever I want to edit a method, I type edit method, give it the name of the method. It throws me into an editor. I edit it, save, reloads. I can test it out. I can keep doing this over and over until I get the code that I want. Mm. It's uh, it's it's a very very cool gem. And when you say when you say REPL, that's R E P L, which some people pronounce REPL. Which, yes. Yeah. That's, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know why I say REPL. Actually, that's a that's a. A uh, good note. A lot of people do say REPL. Hey, I've I've heard other people say that as well. I just want you know I I don't know that everybody's heard that uh, even even heard of REPL or REPL. So yeah, so um, REPL or REPL. Uh, you know, I think I probably first heard the term coming from people who use Lisp um, or people who use Clojure, and uh, stands for read, eval, print, loop. Uh, but it's you know in many languages in Python and Ruby, um, and there's there, there's a Perl repl, although it's not part of the standard Perl distro, uh, but in lots of languages like this, you know, you have just an interactive shell where you can go in and type stuff and get results, and and that's really all it is. 
Um, but you know, in the Lisp community, uh, I think the uh, repo is is highly prized because uh, of the close interaction you can have with uh, tools, where you know you're editing something in your editor and you have it evaluated directly into your repo, and uh, you can go back and forth and, and test things. And you know, with with Ruby, uh, you've always been able to do that with IRB to go in and you know code in there, but it seemed like sort of a separate environment from your main project uh, at that point. And uh, with Pry, I've been able to really link the two closely, so that I feel like it's almost the exact opposite of development that I would do with Closure, where I'm in my editor all day and I'm telling it, "Hey, send this over to the repo and see how it works." Um, with Pry, I can be in my repo and say, "Hey, send this over to the editor. Let me change it." All right, now let me see how it works. Um, it's 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 very very cool. Even if you're not going sort of that hardcore with it, um, it's nice because you can insert statements into. Uh, any Ruby program anywhere and say, hey, at when you run here, go ahead and open up Pry and give me a shell into my executing program. So uh, when you're testing and you have failing tests, it's a really great way to debug. Instead of just throwing print statements in there, you know, you can tell it, hey, open up Pry, and suddenly you're, you're inside your failing test. You can examine everything going on and see what the cause of the error is. That sounds totally awesome, but I'm a little confused. You said you... You you're working in Pry and you send it over to your editor. Does it like save a modified file and then you just reload it in your editor, or what happens there? Yeah, so it saves. Um, well, if uh, so, it can introspect and see where everything is defined, right? So if it's in code that you've been working with, uh, you know, you have um, let's say you're in a Rails app and you have a textbook model. You know, if you say edit method textbook 2s, it will open up uh, app models textbook rb. Uh, at the 2s method, and then you can change it. And when you save that and close the editor, it'll reload it inside of Pry. I got you. Um, if you've defined a method in there, this is kind of cool. So you know, I go in there and I define a temporary method that I'm using to test something out, and then I want to go back and change it. I can say edit method, and it'll save it to a temporary file. Let me edit it in my editor. When I save and close my editor, it reloads that, and you know, it's updated it. So no matter where it's defined, whether it's you know in your program or just you know in memory inside of Pry. Uh, you can you can edit go back and re-edit methods uh, re-edit classes all these things. That sounds awesome. I I'm totally looking forward to using that the next time I'm on a uh, doing some some Rails or Ruby work. Um, so you said you have you've got Pry. Is there are there other aspects to your Ruby setup where you've you know tricked it out? So yes. Um, so you know one thing that uh, people encounter a lot when they're working with Ruby is that there's several implementations of Ruby, and different projects use different versions of Ruby. And so you might have on one project, you know, Ruby 1.8, another one Ruby 1.9, another one JRuby, another one maybe Rubinius. Um, and so you know you've got to have something to manage that. And there's two main tools out there, RVM and RBENV. And uh, I've been using RBENV. Both of them are really good tools, and there's a little bit of a fuss about it when uh, RBNV came out. I, I think they're both, you know, very equivalent. Uh, I just happened to use one, but um, you know, even with that, I like to stay sort of on the edge of of uh, what's coming out with Ruby. And one thing that I noticed when I started using Ruby 1.9 almost exclusively was uh, my Rails apps were getting really slow. And so, doing some investigation in that, seeing what other people had found. Um, you know, I found there was a, a regression in Ruby 1.9.2 where uh, every time you loaded a file, um, every file you required made the next require take longer and longer and longer, and it became sort of exponential. So, um, you know, Ruby's not known as being the fastest language anyway. So, you know, have something that 
really slows your startup time down is, is not great. So um, you know, using RBENV, I've been able to uh, test out, you know, add patches to uh, to Ruby, see if that fits it. When Ruby 193 came out, I could switch over to that and then switch back when I needed to, you know, make sure that everything I was working with still worked with 192. Um, 193 fits the regressions, so you know I could go and do that, and suddenly my test suite takes half the time to run. And uh, just on uh, Wednesday, I uh, downloaded some patches from 193 and added them to my local version so that I could, you know, uh, shave another two or three seconds off my test run. It doesn't sound like a lot, but I'm not a super patient person, so uh, anything I can do to make Ruby uh, faster, I like to do. Um, so that's a, that's sort of another part of my setup is is having this ability to quickly switch between Rubies everywhere on my system. Mm-hmm. Um, that's awesome, and I and I I tell you I can totally. I mean, I think everybody can relate. I don't know if there's a developer on Earth that has not at one point had to wait for the computer to do something. Exactly, definitely. Um, anytime you can, you know, sort of minimize that, you're going to be way more invested in what you're doing. Um, you know, you're much less tempted to switch over to Twitter while your tests run. And suddenly find yourself, you know, five feet deep into a Twitter war or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so okay. So we got we got uh, Pry, okay. uh, RBENV, and then what else you got? All right. So um, you know, from there, you uh, you know, big thing is is editors, of course, and um, you know, you, you really want to make sure that your editors set up well for you to be able to work easily, uh, and that's been sort of um, focused for me lately because I've been doing a lot of remote pairing. And so, you know, I uh, for remote peering, what we often do at Relevance um, is uh, have a shared EC2 instance that we SSH into. So a combination of Tmux and then uh, one of two console editors, either Emacs or VI, depending on who I'm working with, uh, you know, we've, we've got set up there. So being in the terminal all day inside Tmux, you know, I've really had to focus on uh, making sure that my editor experience was great. I think I'm one of the few people that, at least at relevance that feels as comfortable in Emacs as VI, um, but I'm constantly learning from from the other one. So when I'm you know sort of having an Emacs week, I start missing certain things from VI and I try to bring those in, um, and vice versa. This last week uh, I've been pairing with a guy who does a lot of closure, so we've been using Emacs all week and. Um, there's lots of little things in there that, that became annoyances, so we were uh, tweaking it. Um, one of the things I found that was nice was uh, uh, an enhancement. There's a common uh, library for Emacs called Find File and Project. Uh, this is Find File and Git Project. You can find it on Marmalade, the Emacs repo. Um, but it uses uh, Git LS files, so you know it's just as quick as can be. Uh, it you know will zip through your directory and everything that you know you're tracking with Git, it'll return that so you can quickly open up any file inside of your project, um, you know, even faster than, than you could with uh, Find File in Project. So that's been a big one that I uh, I used this week that that I really liked. Um, you know, it, it's funny. I've always been someone who's switched editors a lot, and I I find that you know going back and forth and and trying out different ones, I even if I don't like it, I find stuff that I do like about it, and I can bring in my own. Um, one thing I think, you know, when I've been pairing with other RubyS or just other programmers um, that people may not know about is CTAGs. It's old, you know, um, it's been around forever, but I find lots of developers don't know about it. CTAGs will index uh, your source code and uh, give you, you know, the ability to use it to quickly jump to definitions of methods, um, every instance of a method call. 
uh, you know, definitions of instance variables and um, having that well integrated into Emacs and VI has been just amazing. But, you know, I learned about that not from using those, but from using uh, IntelliJ, which had the ability to jump to definitions of methods. And I quickly realized I need this everywhere. So, um, you know, with, with editors, it's more of a, a, a constantly changing thing. So I can't point to and say, you know, this is the perfect Emacs or the perfect VI setup, but I do uh, throw mine up on GitHub and, uh, you know, they're constantly changing. So uh, maybe, maybe they'd be useful to somebody. Cool. Yeah. We'll totally throw a link to that up in the show notes so people can grab it off the, off the blog when this episode goes up. Um, so yeah, that, that's the sort of third uh, part of my Ruby setup that I'm really happy with. Um, on top of that, you know, uh, no, knowing Bundler well has been very useful to me. Um, you know, Bundler is something that you use in every Ruby project now, just about. But uh, you know, uh, by default, you know, it does some stuff that may not be exactly what you want. I like having all my uh, gems blown out, so then I can run CTADs over them and quickly jump to definitions of things found in my libraries. Um, also, I can quickly grab and get you know documentation for those things, and so. Uh, yeah, uh, knowing Bundler well would be part of, I think, any Ruby developer uh, becoming sort of better with the tool set. So how did you how did you kind of learn Bundler better? I mean, is there a good web page or there the docs or how'd you do it? Yeah, the Bundler docs are really good actually. Um, you know, part of it was just bashing my head against Bundler. It was not a great um, thing when it first came out. I think every Ruby developer who was uh, or every Rails developer at least who was working um, probably two years ago now, it remembers when Bundler sort of came onto the scene and uh, it, it wasn't great. It, it had it had problems tracking dependencies. It would you know, mess up your your directory. And so, uh, you know, using it day in and day out, sort of helping, you know, watching it grow past that and then uh, staying up to date on the docs um, has been interesting. It's a really... Uh, it's a really cool piece of work. If you ever want to sort of level up in your knowledge of Ruby, reading some of the source for Bundler is uh, definitely a good place to go. The sources, you know, Bundler does a lot of stuff, so it can be pretty complicated, but it's been implemented really elegantly and is worth taking a look at. Cool. I will, I'll definitely have to do that. Um, that's cool. So well, is there anything else? I mean, I know you've just brain dumped a huge pile of stuff for people that weren't using those things, like myself that weren't using those things before. What else you got? Wow, what else do I have? So um, let me think. Let me think here. Um, you know, good documentation is always important. I see different people use uh, uh, different stuff for Ruby documentation, and um, if you know, if you aren't familiar with API Doc, that's that's where I go. It's um, online at API API.com. Mm-hmm. It covers uh, Ruby and Rails documentation. Um, you know, I, I like it because it has user editable uh, comments, so you can go in and you can you know, add comments when you discover something about uh, how something works. Uh, you know, that was back when I did PHP a long time ago. That was one of the few things I could really say um, about PHP that I, that I really liked was the documentation. Uh, when you went there, the best part of it wasn't really the docs; it was all the comments underneath each um, you know documentation page that told you, "Hey, I tried this and it worked like this, or it didn't work. You know, try this out." Um, and so, yeah, uh, having that on the table is, is great. The um, probably the last thing that's really helped my development setup with Ruby and with other languages is using Vagrant. Um, you know. I, 
vagrant is a is a big topic, but um, it it is really fantastic. Can you? T- I mean, I, I I don't think everybody knows what vagrant is. I I'm vaguely aware, but maybe you could explain it to to us. Yeah. So vagrant is a Ruby gem that uh, helps you manage virtual box instances, and uh, and and specifically, it helps you manage virtual box instances that are set up to um, have a, a an environment very much like what you're going to deploy to and to make it easy for you to use that. So typically, um, when you're using Vagrant, uh, what you end up with is a VirtualBox instance that you can start up and stop from the command line using Vagrant that uh, you can SSH to without a password, just one command, and that shares your local development directory um, and, and forwards ports. So you can develop locally if you you know, if you have an editor you like to use locally, you don't like to use them in the terminal. Um, then you know you can still edit locally. Uh, you can you can, uh, but your uh, development server would run in an environment very much like um, it would run in production. You can use your local browser because um, the ports are forwarded, but it gives you this little segregated environment um, to run in. You know, it's not just about having it close to production. That's fine. Um, but even if your environment there wasn't, uh, uh, you know, exactly like production, maybe in production you're using CentOS and you have, you know, your bigger instances, Ubuntu, uh, even even with that, the really cool thing about it is, you know, with every project we work on, we use different things. We use Redis, we use Postgres, we use uh, MySQL, we use Memcached, and, you know, I've got a... I've got a couple of machines that I use for development, but the one I'm talking to you now on is a uh, OSX box, and it's a MacBook Pro. And I don't want to have all those things running on my MacBook Pro all the time. I don't want to manually start and stop them all. Um, and so having this little segregated environment that has exactly what I need for that project is awesome. I can start it up, and you know when it starts up, I've got my Redis, I've got Memcached, I've got whatever I need for that project. And when I shut it down, it's gone. Um, it, it really helps isolate uh, e- each project. We switch a lot between projects here at Relevance, and um, I think one one thing that you know before I had this sort of segregated environment um, that I would encounter is weird conflicts because you know Project X requires uh, MySQL 5.0, but Project you know Y requires 5.5, and suddenly I have project or problems on uh, you know an older project that I worked on because I've updated my machine to work with this newer project. When I have to bounce back, it's much harder. But uh, with Vagrant, it's been really easy. Um, the last thing about Vagrant that makes it nice is it does um, make it easy to use uh, Chef, which is a system configuration language uh, written in Ruby, or Puppet, another system configuration language, to um, not only, uh, you know, not only does it sort of uh, help manage those virtual bot instances, but it can set them up from scratch like that. So you can blow it away and start over. Um, and in minutes, you've got, you know, if, if for some reason your VM um, gets hosed, you can literally minutes later have uh, a brand new VM set up that, that has everything you need for development. I, I will. I, I had heard of Vagrant. I know that a bunch of people at Relevance are interested in it, but I hadn't really checked it out. Um, I'll have to, though, because my setup is that I actually run Windows, unlike most people at uh, Relevance. But I do all of my development in a in a virtual machine. And so having that convenient way to, to pop them up and down and configure them, that'd be, that'd be pretty handy. Yeah, I'm, I'll be interested to see how it uh, works on Windows. I haven't used it on Windows, but I have a brand new machine coming, hopefully this weekend, uh, a ThinkPad. And it has, I was going to install Linux on it, but it has Windows 7, and I've never used Windows 7. And it seems like you know maybe I should try it out a bit. So I think I may uh, try to install Vagrant on there and and develop with with that for a while. 
I, I like Windows 7 well enough. Uh, the only thing I find is that uh, a lot of the tools that we use, and I know that, and we'll get to this in a minute, I know you're a closure guy as well. Um, for example, the experience is somewhat degraded there. Uh, just It's just around, you know, a, a lot of the impetus in the community is on Unix and Unix-like operating systems. Uh, so what I wind up doing is, and this, this is something I've only recently come to, and I love it, which is to run Windows as my main OS, which gives me uh, the one application that I absolutely can't live without, Skype, <laughs> which um, runs best in Windows. I've run it on all three operating systems, and it, it, it runs best under Windows, although the, the Mac version is, is, is pretty good these days. Um, but then I run a, a Linux virtual machine, and then rather than use the VM, you know, in the windowed mode, or even the one where it make where the where VMware or uh, VirtualBox will make the windows look like they're part of your Windows 7 desktop, right? I actually uh, start the SigWin X server um, on my Windows machine, SSH into the virtual machine, um, even though it's running on my machine, I still SSH in with X forwarding, and then run all of my apps with a remote display, remote you know X forwarding. Right. So what's great about that is the clipboard works right. The windows are real, like Windows 7 windows. And so it's as close to seamless as I've been able to get, and much better, in my opinion, than the um, the VMware, uh, what they call Fusion under Windows. I know there's a product called VMware Fusion, but they have this thing, they you say, enter Fusion in the VMware windows, kind of separate from the VMware uh, virtual machine frame and become windows in your desktop. That's cool. That That's... um. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great way to do that. Um, that that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I, uh, I might have to try that. Yeah, the only thing that was hard to get set up was some of the font stuff, and it's not wasn't hard. It was just um, figuring out how to get the right fonts installed under Windows so that applications that are running on on Ubuntu but displaying on a Windows box don't look like garbage. So right, um, I'd be happy to help you with that though. Um, cool. So yeah, um, well, dude, that's I, I can I can tell already that writing the show notes for this episode is going to take me forever because you just gave us a really <laughs> great dump of fantastic technologies to look through. Um, but I, I there's a couple of things I would love to talk to you about. Um, I was just flipping through your your Twitter stream before uh, before the show, and um, one thing that caught my eye was uh, you had a you had a line. You said you are loving using SQL instead of Active Record in your current project. You said it's simpler yet easier to do complex stuff um and you know active record is a i mean i don't, I don't know if controversial controversial is the right word but it's a part of rails that i think people trip on sometimes and i and i was wondering what if you could talk about about sql and kind of where your thinking is at on that right now sure um you know so i'll uh, go ahead and start with the one negative thing i can say about sql which is that it's called sql um, <laughs> we've had to be really careful to make sure that when we talk about structured query language we say sql and that when we're talking about the orm sql you know s e q u or yeah q u e l that we say sql um it's it's about as bad as closure script using the google closure library oh yeah so uh Okay, so Active Record is is I, I cannot express enough enthusiasm for how great Active Record is. Active Record is great, and it's got even better in Rails three, uh, with being sort of factored out into Active Model and then Active Record underneath that. Um, but you know, Active Record is incredibly opinionated, and that's part of what makes Rails great. Is you know, it's a um, I'm trying to remember how I heard it phrased, uh, but it's a um, you know, it's a sort of well-tended set of technologies uh, that have been chosen for you. 
and they work really well together. And if you want to build your app that way, that's awesome. They're going to kick ass. Um, on my current project I'm working on here at Relevance, uh, the database is one that we've inherited from an older application that was not written with Ruby. That never happens. Right. And with that application, you know, they just does the database doesn't meet uh, the sort of standards that Active Record sets. And, you know, it's not a bad database. Uh, and, and Active Record, I will give it that it's quite flexible. You know, if you have your table names aren't named what it would expect, that's easy to change. Um, you know, even. When, even if your primary key isn't what it expects, it'll do that, but it starts to get a little shaky around that. SQL, on the other hand, um, does not expect your database to like anything. It will just work the way um, that it is. Uh, you can you can do some really fantastic stuff with it. You can have you know multiple key primary keys. Uh, you can have um, tables without primary keys. It handles that. Uh, we have a really strange situation where. In lots of tables, uh, there's a column that you know holds an ID that is relating to a different table, but instead of being called you know whatever ID, it's just called you know whatever that model's name is. Uh, so in your ORM, of course, if I say you know textbook dot author, I want to get that author model uh, back. You know I, I want to take that, and manipulate it. But in the database, the author column on the textbook's table is an ID. Um, Active Record would just flip out. It would not know even remotely what to do. And uh, SQL uh, handled it with with Aplom. You know, I had to do a little monkey patching. Uh, talked, went on IRC, talked to the SQL author. Uh, about three days later, he had um, the fix that that uh, we talked about in SQL itself. Uh, so you know, it, there's something to be said for um, having a sort of smaller, faster moving library that you can really communicate with the people who are developing it, and um, you know, they can get real feedback. Uh, Active Record is used by so many people that you know you certainly can't have the feature you need thrown in there tomorrow. Um, you know, there's some downsides to using a small a library with a much smaller user base too, obviously. But uh, yeah, it's been fantastic working with it. It's very fast, um, and it's really really flexible. The uh, one thing I'll, I'll say about it that I do really like too, and this is something that if you come from web development in um, you know another language, let's say you've done a lot of Perl. Um, maybe you've done a lot of PHP, whatever, uh, is, is nice, is in those languages you may not have been using an ORM, and you may be much more used to just thinking about your data and your relational database in as data sets. Um, and SQL, first and foremost, is about data set manipulation. The uh, sort of object relational modeling comes on top of that. So you can use it, uh, just it gives you a really nice Ruby-ish way to mess with data sets, which is what I need um, half the time on this project. So mm, Gotcha. That sounds cool, too. I will have to check that out as well. You're making my to-do list really long here, Clint. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so especially because, uh, like you, I am, um, I am, I am a guy who, who loves closure. And I mean, I, I've, you know, watching what you've been doing, you have, I think, more than almost anyone at Relevance, you've got a foot um, on both sides of that particular fence. Not that it's a, a division, just that you, you seem to move more freely between those two worlds than, than most people. Are you are you a big fan of closure? I mean, I think you must be. I, I am a big fan of closure. It's it's funny that you say that. It's very uh, very nice of you to say that. I feel like a closure newbie. And every time I uh, learn more about closure, I, I feel more like a newbie. It is a, a deep, rich language. It has a lot of interesting things to it. Um, but yeah, I really like it. It's it's really fun to work with. And, uh, you know, I've sort of my hobby language outside of Ruby um, for a long time has been uh, Scheme, uh, messing with stuff. And so, you know, 
using a diff- another Lisp is really interesting. I have to say, it has made my closure code incredibly verbose and incredibly non-idiomatic. I write, you know, these massively recursive functions that just, you know, uh, someone will come by and say, oh, all you need is into there, and suddenly it goes from, you know, 12 lines to two. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's been it's been interesting um, to learn closure and to see the choices made. You know, I said this the other day to someone, um, it's an incredibly functional language that happens to give you the ability to write it in a much more imperative style than you would expect. A lot of the stuff in there, like into um, the the th- uh, threaded methods, you know, with the arrow, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, it, I end up writing code that looks a lot more like, you know, Ruby than I would expect. Um, it, it can let me write code that, that I can sort of follow without uh, going, you know, really down the functional rabbit hole. Um, so, it, yeah, it's a nice set of choices that, that have been made around it, and I'm really enjoying learning it. That's cool. Has it? So I know that you're a, you said you're a scheme guy, so you already had a bunch of Lisp. Has the Clojure experience started to change the way that you program Ruby at all? Um, it's funny. I do rely on uh, just going straight to data structures more than I did before. Um, you know, as as a Rubyist, uh, you're very much in the object-oriented world, and whenever you need to have a collection of something or whatever, you know, it's easy to quickly reach for making a new class. And uh, I, you know, before Ruby, I was a Perl guy for a long time, and, and in Perl, you know, arrays and hashes were what I used everywhere. And it seems like using Clojure, I've actually come back around and started, you know, in my Ruby code, um, you know, using arrays and using uh, hashes or, you know, enclosure maps and vectors. Uh, a lot more than I did before, uh, just for holding data and passing it around. So. Yeah, that's definitely a big difference. That, for me at least, and I think for a lot of people when they when they move to Closure, is that how much you can get done with those with those data structures. I was thinking about it today. I was writing a little C plus plus, and you know you don't really have much in the way of native um, literal data types there except for string. And I was thinking to myself how nice it is to have all those literal data types. And I was thinking, you know, I think you could easily explain that to somebody to say, can you imagine if every string that you wanted to make, you had to say new string and then pass it a sequence of characters, right? It'd be crazy. So like having data literals is so awesome that, uh, you know, I've worked with Clojure long enough now that I, I don't always appreciate that. But thinking about it in the light, like you were just saying, of, of having those available, it, it, uh, it's a good thing. Yeah, uh, you know, if you want a sort of humbling experience around closure, go back and um, you know my my favorite scheme is Racket. And I always recommend people to check it out. But uh, go in there and try and create a, a hash, and then try and you know get a reference out of it and manipulate <laughs> it, and you'll realize you're typing three times as much as you would in, in closure. Of course, you'll quickly end up writing macros um, so that your uh, Racket can look a lot more like closure. Right. Uh, so <laughs> that's what I end up doing. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. I've I've done common Lisp and ELisp in in the recent past, uh, and it's a uh, same same story there. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was I was po- like I said I was poking around the web looking at you know what is what is Clinton's web presence look like and I loved on your website which I don't know if you've updated in a while but you have a statement there right at the top um, it says I'm Clinton R Nixon and my mission is to help world changing organizations build high quality effective maintainable web applications I love that that is so cool on so many levels um, how did you come up with that. Um, well, so before I came to Relevance, I worked for myself um, for uh, not that long, actually, <laughs> and I and I can tell you why. But um, you know, I sat down and had a lot of thought about uh, what I want to do with my career. I came from another consulting organization, um, and that which I loved and and still do. They're they're great people, um, 
but you know, I, I, I had given a lot of thought to what do I want to do with the rest of my life? You know, uh, being just a great, you know, I almost said being just a great programmer. That would be very non-humble of me. But you know, <laughs> being being <laughs> being a good programmer is, is wasn't all I wanted to do. And um, you know, the the real reason I, I left that previous organization to start working for myself is is I did want to uh, use my talents with programming to make a real change. Uh, it's been great coming to Relevance. You know, um, not everyone knows that Relevance is a B corporation or even what a B corporation is. Yeah, uh, we you, actually talked about that with Justin on our very first episode of the podcast. So that of course, people can go course. back and listen to that if they want to hear the details. Um, but yeah, being able to come to an organization like Relevance, which uh, does really try to make their presence in the community a positive one, and does you know make sure that they give um, you know their strengths to to uh, to other organizations. We've done some charitable work and different stuff. Um, has has been great. But yeah, I, I came came up with that. Probably this sounds uh, very dreamy, but I think I came up with that in a uh, little hostel in the mountains of uh, Costa Rica, where I went for a vacation after I quit my previous job. Of course, I you did. I sat down for a couple of days and thought, you know, what? Like if I had to write in a sentence, what do I want to do with programming? That would be it. And uh, that picture on my uh, webpage, and and that webpage is very oriented towards. Um, when I was previously working for myself, although everything on it still applies, but uh, that picture there is in that little hospital in Costa Rica. Oh, okay. Um, as a programmer, I can uh, really recommend uh, Costa Rica as a nice place to go. Lots of Wi-Fi and really beautiful, and uh, you take a little EPC and you can do some great development surrounded by some really, really beautiful sites. Cool. Um, well, I, uh, I the other thing I know that there's been one pretty darn significant event in your in your life lately. Uh, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about it at all, but uh, I'm sure you know which one I mean. Oh, sure. Yeah, definitely. I'll talk about it. Um, my wife and I just had a child, and um, yeah, he's he's a very special child because we uh, we we got him very very quickly. Um, he's adopted, and um, we found out. I think uh, we found out on a Friday, a Friday during Closure Conj. Actually, I had to leave Closure Conj early. That's right. About the only reason I wouldn't be mad that I had to leave Closure Conj early was that I was getting a child. Um, yeah, they called us on Friday, and that very next Thursday, less than a week later, um, he came home. Uh, he's he just today, when we're recording this podcast, uh, turned three months old, and uh, he's just growing, and he's he's awesome. I. You know, every day with him is even better. Um, you know, I thought that I knew. Um, you know, I thought that I loved programming, and I still do. But man, it's it's just nothing, nothing compared to the feeling that you get when you uh, look at look at your you know son's eyes. Um, he does a lot of pair programming for relevance. Actually, <laughs> I, uh, I've been working at home quite a bit, and uh, you know more more often than you'd expect, he's sitting in my lap while I'm uh, you know pairing with someone. I'm not driving. I have to ask them to type for a while. But um, yeah, it, he's he's a great little uh, pair programmer. So. Yeah, that's awesome, and we're all we're all pretty excited for you. Um, I know that you guys were were thrilled, and it was it was great to see that. Uh, so, very cool, and I'm especially glad to hear that you were starting him with the, with the uh, with the good stuff, Ruby and Closure right off the bat. So that's great. Yeah, I you know I mentioned Racket earlier. I think it is um, possibly the closest replacement f uh, to Basic that we have today in mm -hmm. terms of a language that anyone can pick up and use, you know, it's all integrated into one thing. And yeah, I can't wait till he gets old enough to uh, mess with it. I'm going to set him up with a little, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a tiny little computer and uh, throw a racket on there and just see what he can do. Um, I'm, I mean, my kids are a little older uh, than yours, uh, but uh, I'm, you know, getting pretty close to the age when it's going to make sense to start teaching them. And I, I have been giving thought to, 
you know, languages, because there's, there's Scratch, if people haven't looked at that, that's a really cool graphical programming language that's intended for kids and other, and other beginners. Um, but of course, as you say, there's, you know, there's lisps of various kinds. Uh, Racket gets enormously good feedback from lots of people. Um, and I actually think it's, it's great to start at both ends. I think my tendency would be to uh, think about starting people off with both a lisp and an assembly language. Right, and, and kind of see both sides of the abstraction spectrum. Definitely, yeah. that 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 makes a lot of sense. Although, um, yeah, good good luck getting uh, getting your kids to focus on assembly language. <laughs> I I have trouble with that myself. Yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah. I I hear you. Like I said, I haven't put this into practice yet, so it's all kind of a pipe dream at the moment. But uh, um, yeah, well, I I um I think it's probably about time to wrap up. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um couple things I want to say. Uh, first of all, I don't know if there's anything that you're working on or or um, stuff you want to make people aware of or, you know, anybody you want to, to, to call out as long as you've got the got the forum here, people listening. Uh, definitely. So there's there's one thing I'm working on right now. I'd love to just uh, pimp real quick. Um, I have a hard time keeping up with, uh, you know, writing web logs. I'll start and it's easy to get distracted. Um, and so I'm trying to get a couple of people together to write one with me. Um, and by the time this podcast is out, we'll, we should have our first article published. It's uh, at prompt.sh, which is a great TLD. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's going to be a little uh, sort of a webzine about having fun while you're programming. Uh, the first thing that's going to be up there is actually a uh, an implementation of Hunt the Wumpus in, in Racket. So uh, that, that'll be a, a fun post to put up there. But uh, yeah, I'd love it if people check that out and uh, send me feedback. Cool. Awesome. Great. Absolutely. Yeah, and they can find you at prompt.sh apparently. That's, that's very cool. Yes. All right. Cool. Uh, the other question I have to ask you is um, what music should we play on the way out here? Well, you know, one of the uh, funkiest songs of all time and one of my very favorite is The Street Beater by Quincy Jones. All right. Uh, you may have heard it as the theme song for Sanford and Son, one of my very favorite shows. With awesome. Very good. Well, I, I'm a, ba- a bass player, so I love the funk myself, and uh, and that's coming up in the background right now. Well, Clinton, I really have to thank you for a, a really interesting conversation and for illuminating uh, a whole bunch of interesting things uh, with your Ruby setup and, and everything else that you talked about. Really appreciate your time. I knew that you'd be a good guest, and I wasn't at all disappointed. So thank you very much for coming on. Well, thank you, Craig. I really enjoyed it. Good. And uh, thanks, everyone else, for listening uh, to Think Relevance, the podcast. We'll catch you next time. Bye.